Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a nonprofit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Chris Parrish is the Director of Global Conservation for the Peregrine Fund. He's also the co-founder of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. Yes, non-lead bullets. Super controversial topic. And I wanted to pick his brain about it because I saw Chris on CBS Morning News talking about the California condor and hunters on the kebab or Kaibab, in northern Arizona, really making a difference. And what was so cool about that interview was it showed on a national platform that hunters cared, that hunters were interested in wildlife conservation. This is an amazing, hard-hitting, fast-paced conversation. And after it, you're going to be a big fan of Chris Parrish. Chris, where are you in Arizona, in California? You're in that area, right? Oh, man, I got it. Uh, yeah, I stay a, a ways away from California these days. But I did, <laughs> I did, come, I did come from there. But um, Bakersfield, is, if anybody knows Bakersfield, uh, we kind of have the relationship with California that Texas does with the U.S., <laughs> interesting that's a very good analogy yeah yeah very I'm, good analogy I, I live in analogies um yeah don't, my brain works that way but i'm in northern arizona so i'm up at seven thousand feet just south of flagstaff arizona i have uh, been through that area i absolutely love it it was with a past ex-girlfriend that i was trying to woo back into my life and uh did not work because and and thankfully so, because I married the woman of my dreams and now I have two beautiful young boys that we are raising to be 
they're currently savages. Yeah. Um, but Are we, all? we can. Well, that is true. <laughs> Again, it is very true. Yeah. I feel like this 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 conversation is going to be full of truths. I hope um, so. It'd be true to true to me, and when it resonates with other people, it's uh, reinforcing. Well, Chris Parrish, uh, please introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm I'm Chris Parrish. I'm uh, yeah. I guess our <laughs> the way it came together is uh, you something struck out in what I said, and something that went public that I'm the redneck biologist. I am a redneck biologist through and through. Love and it. And I work for the Peregrine Fund. We're a uh, worldwide uh, raptor conservation organization, and uh, we're founded by hunters, by falconers. Um, so to be in conservation, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I love about falconers, and we, I, I reached out to a lady. Uh, you may actually know her. Um, shit, what is Lauren's last name? It'll come to me. But she was on sixty minutes. She was the first woman falconer to go into Mongolia and uh-huh. do a golden eagle and the whole kitten caboodle. And um, I re- I reached out to her because I wanted her to be on Blood Origins, and I said. Are you a hunter? She was like, I am, but I prefer to hunt with a bird. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and I was like, holy smokes. Like how tribal, ancestral, and how close to Mother Nature can you get without, you know, how, what does an auntie say to that, right? What does an auntie say to us hunting with what a bird actually is supposed to do? When she hunts. Well, I know what many of them will say, and many of them will say that that's even more barbaric than, uh, you know, squeezing the life. How could they say that? How could they say that? You know, they're they're either out of touch or so far beyond me that it's hard for me to be able to communicate with them. But, But that's the cool thing about my job is because I'm a conservation biologist and a scientist, and I work with some endangered species that I get an opportunity to engage with a lot of those folks that may not understand the value or the values in hunting and the conservation that has come from hunting. And so I, I often say, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot about non-lead and the benefits to non-lead in use in our hunting and angling. Um, but really, I tell people that we have as much, if not more, work to do with the non-hunting community than we do the hunters. Hunters and anglers I can talk to because I'm that in my core. And that's what I love about your your podcast and your your videos. And I mean, that really resonates with me. But to be able to effectively articulate that to the non-hunting community is key to our future in hunting and key to them understanding their history and their background. See, what's going to happen now is I'm going to take this snippet, this 10-second snippet of Chris Parrish, and we're going to cut it, and we're going to morph it, and we're going to use it as the Blood Origins. There you go. There speech. you go. Well, you have because to That's right. My... That's the whole reason why we did what we do, right? We, we, don't, we don't create content for hunters. Yes, hunters look at it. Hunters get something from it. Hunters learn how to communicate with it. Hunters learn about a deeper resonating meaning. Maybe they don't want to think about it right now, but they will think about it in the future. But it's built for non-hunters, and we're building films for non-hunters because yeah. they 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 have a perception of who we are because of what is being or the drivel that's being pushed out in social media and the people that are pushing, you know, rhetoric against us. And unfortunately, 
or no, fortunately, let me let me reiterate, I think fortunately, hunters have started to wake up and go, oh, shit, we need to start creating our own content. Yes. That gets pushed, that's pushing now against this wave that we've been, that's been hitting our shores for the last 15 years. Absolutely. You know, I wrote some notes just, just to, to put my own mind. I've been in Zoom meetings all flipping day, but I wrote down a few things that, that really resonated with me while reading, uh, again, revisiting your podcast and looking back and seeing all these buddies of mine that I've met over the years that you've actually interviewed is like, how cool is this? But one of the things I wrote and it, and it, I think it's apropos for both the hunters and non-hunters, this conversation we're having here. And you know what? Ignorance be damned. We have no excuse in this day and age to be ignorant. Right. And to have empathy, to understand where people are coming from, you have to listen. That's hard for me because I love to talk uh, and I love to share mm-hmm. you know, my experiences. But if you listen to them for just a moment, you can figure out where to go to implore them to listen to you. And then when you share your story and it's perfectly tailored, you can change people's minds. You can move their needle. And that's, to me, what conservation and hunting heritage is all about. Mm-hmm. 100%. Who, who, one of you, who is one of your buddies that we've interviewed? Oh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't say buddies, but just people that I've met over the years. Um, you know, Larry Weissand, every, every time I see, you know, Dr. Whitetail from a kid watching him on television to see him on the floor at SHOT Show. Right. I mean, I, right. I yeah, I run around like a, a little uh, Dixie dog behind that guy and talk to him whenever I get a chance. Uh, Braxton. Um, um, oh, geez. Braxton McCoy. Braxton, Do you know Braxton at all? Braxton and I got into a really deep discussion at a backcountry oh, hunter. Braxton doesn't talk. Braxton. Braxton doesn't talk deep. Come on, man. Oh, man. Braxton and I hit it off, and we we communicate via email and on social media. I've yet to get out into the field with him, but uh, Braxton was mm-hmm. another one that I saw. Um, and then um, the, other, uh, the other young man that I've run into now down in southern Arizona, I've stopped into uh, um, uh, the camp where all the, the young people that uh, uh, um, Randy Newberg invites out every year. And I'm down there. I have a, a sickness for the small game and the opportunities, the over counter, over the counter um, archery tags for the cows deer down there. And so I always stop by and, and talk to Randy because he is Uncle Randy to us all. And um, sure, the sure. young man from the public land, um, oh, what's his name? Um, I just saw his picture and I can't remember his name, but I've talked to him several years in a row now down there in southern Arizona. And uh, he does the, the, he's an advocate for public lands as well. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing when you start digging and scratching. And um, yeah, when I saw you um, on the 60 Minutes, by the way, congratulations on the... CBS Sunday morning. CBS Sunday morning. That's right. CBS Sunday morning. Um, Your your infamy that comes with being on National Network. Um, But I saw you and I heard you say that... You know, I'm just a redneck. I think you said redneck biologist hunter, yeah, something like that. It was. I was like, man, and and I didn't know much about the Peregrine Fund, right? I assumed, wrongfully so, ignorance, right, because I didn't do my research, <laughs> that the Peregrine Fund was like an Audubon, right? That was very leftish, very very leftish against yeah. you know hunting and whatnot, but. The, the the thing that you you know that you said when you started that it's a, it was based on falconry, um, and that inherently has hunting tied to it um, is is amazing. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah, I think. That, um, go ahead. Yeah, the thought. No, no, no. You go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that. You know, I think that's why when I I used to work for the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and when I met the folks from the Peregrine Fund, it was a no nonsense uh, demeanor about the group. That the way that they attacked issues and things, um, it, it was strictly business and it was hard work, and they were small and nimble. And of course, understanding how hard it is to work in the the uh, times uh, of today, where you have all the bureaucracies to navigate, all mm-hmm. the special interest mm-hmm. groups out there, and of course, you know, you could say that Peregrine Fund is just another special interest group, but but they attack difficult problems and they attack it with um, I, the demeanor that that um, that I think uh, does something to my core. Whereas, you know, you have something tough, you smack it in the forehead and see how it responds, and then you respond, and then you continue to move forward. That doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're you're brash. It just means that hey, this this lead issue, as it has become a political quagmire. If yep. you if you let that be the narrative that is controlled by the media then yeah, you're in the quagmire. But the way we deal with it is say, hey, we've done some studies. And I often joke, and I did earlier today on another call, I said, look, you can engage with us and hear it straight from the horse's ass. Um, me, <laughs> because I've done some of these studies and 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 everybody can redo them and repeat them. You go shoot stuff and you x-ray it and you see that, holy crap, there's some fragments in there. So that's a potential source for lead to be ingested by wildlife. It's really that simple. And when you share it in those simple terms, people are okay with it. But boy, if you come down from a top down, you know, I'm a PhD scientist and I'm going to do this and I did this and you should know better. It just doesn't work, man. You have to appeal to people where they are. And frankly, I'm more comfortable uh, being the redneck biologist that I am and, and that works. So. Well, let's step back because that's the, the, the topic we want to unpack today is this idea of lead lead bullets, this transition to copper bullets, and, and its environmental ramifications. You bet. You know, the, you've just mentioned the political quagmire. And for those that don't understand what the political quagmire is, I think you can sum it up very easily that, and I've heard this, you know, we've got people inside of Blood Origins that uh, have a position that are, hey, any cut to hunting is a cut to hunting, right? And so making it more difficult to access certain things like a copper-bonded bullet. Oh, that copper-bonded bullet is actually, you know, it's $5 more a box. My perception would be like, it's $5 bucks. What's five bucks in today's society? His position would be five bucks is a lot to someone who doesn't have much. You know, and it's another cut. It's like another thing like that. Oh, we have to get over this now. Oh, we have to get over this now. Oh, we have to get over this now. That's the political quagmire. So I'm not the expert here. You are. Um, How much did I miss in terms of the sort of broader issue here? You know, I don't think you you missed anything in identifying where people lie on this issue. Um, I will say this. The more we learn the more capable we are of making better and informed decisions. The beauty about the non-lead partnership, which was what we ended that piece with CBS Sunday morning, we started it with the condor because we've learned so Mm -hmm. much about the lead issue because we follow those birds on an individual basis. So we can tell you what they died of if they die because we have transmitters on them. 
So that's a lot of. So time. let's just back up for a second. Let's back up for a second. Explain the whole like Canadian condor. Set up the whole Canadian. CBS article okay. that let us. Oh no! Shit! Sorry, <laughs> Californian. This is what you get. This is what you get with a South African. Uh, no you know. worries, man. No, anyway, no worries. So, so the Californian condor, the most iconic. Which there you go, right? Vulture species. Yeah. Uh, enter the quagmire. You just named it something called California, which has got a negative connotation to begin with. So that's what we're up against. That's that's. That's how dominated we are by this media and, and all the BS out there. Anyway, you have the, the North America's largest flying land bird, the condor, and it's a scavenger. It's an obligate scavenger. So it only eats things that are already dead, unlike an opportunistic scavenger like a bald or a golden eagle. Bald and golden eagles, bald more than goldens, do a lot of scavenging, especially in the winter months when food's harder to come by. So they have some opportunity to to come across gut piles or the remains of animals that have been shot and left in the field, let's say a coyote or something like that. Well, these species have the potential to ingest lead because the majority of the bullets we use are lead-based. And depending on their composition and the speeds with which they travel, things like that, it determines how much fragmentation might occur. Mm -hmm. And that fragmentation lends to a potential. Here's what you won't hear in the media. No one will take the time and easily cut this part out. If we use lead-based ammunition or fishing tackle, there's a potential for poisoning, right. period. That is fact. There is a potential. Now, is that potential high enough that it warrants uh, regulation changes or, or things like that? We don't get in. That's not our business. That's the business of the state wildlife agencies. And they manage right. that based on science, some of that science we produce. So what we're doing is taking the information and our knowledge that, hey, standard bullets will fragment to some degree, depending on how fast they're traveling, how well they're constructed, or what they're made of, and where you hit an animal, what distance you hit an animal. There's so many variables you can get lost in the details. But here's the bottom line. If a bullet fragments in an animal, domestic animals even, even if we put down a, a, a a, uh, let's say I put down a horse and I'm out in the middle of the BLM in Northern Arizona and my horse goes down and I need to humanely put it down because it's sick or it's wounded, it's broken mm -hmm. a leg. Anytime a lead-based bullet is used to, to put an animal down or dispatch it or kill it or shoot it, however you want to call it, if the remains of that animal are left in the field, there's a potential that a scavenging animal could be a predator, it could be a scavenger, can eat that carcass and thereby ingest some lead. Now, it doesn't mean if they do ingest lead that they're going to die from it. It's just there's the possibility. Well, for an obligate scavenger like a vulture, where all of their diet comes from animals that they consume that are already dead, seasonally, because of our hunting practices, there's a lot more availability of gut piles come November, December, following the October, November uh, deer hunts. So the potential exposure exists there. It might be 100 fragments, it might be 20 fragments, it might be 400 fragments in a gut pile from a single shot. So you first have to get over that first hurdle. And so most people, however, aren't familiar with how many fragments there are in a carcass because not everybody goes out and x-rays them. <laughs> but what we as mm -hmm. hunters are familiar with is how much of a, of, of a bullet's original mass it retains. So we talk about weight retention as one of those variables mm -hmm. to evaluate the, the, how good the bullet was. And if you're lucky yep. enough to recover a bullet, and let's say it retained 90% of its mass or 60% of its mass. 
So you start out with 180 grain, um, 30-06, and you end up with uh, 110 grains. Well, where did the rest go? That's what's been Mm -hmm. answered by these studies where we radiograph and we x-ray these carcasses and these gut piles. And so that's how we've been able to quantify how many fragments then have the potential to be consumed by the parts that are left in the field. So that's kind of the the basis. so the fragments, let's, let's talk through some of the science of, and we can use some fancy terms right now, bioaccumulation, biomagnification. Let's talk through that because a lot of people would say, well, they're just fragments. Yeah. Right? You, the, the vulture's going to ingest it. It's going to work its way through its digestive system and it should poop it out. Yep. What's the issue here? Exactly. It's all about the frequency and the magnitude of, you know, we're going to use big words, which is not, terribly big, but I'm always accused of that, which is funny. Think of me, the redneck, using big words. Anyway, the frequency and magnitude of exposures is the key. And each species, it's different. And that's why, you know, it's not across the board. If we ingest a piece of lead, the amount of time it stays in our system and the acidity of our gut biome that that it's being produced through, maybe it's less worrisome than it is with a vulture. Think about a vulture and the pH of their system it's so much more acidic and it really has to be because they're dealing with things like botulism, right? They eat dead stuff out on the landscape and bone and bone. Yeah. To be able to digest bone, because a lot of people don't realize that because we've all studied in school, you have the owl pellet and you have these bones and you're like, Oh, they don't digest bones. Actually some birds specialize in digesting bones like Egyptian vultures. Anyway, um, and when a female who has to mobilize calcium to produce an egg of, of a bird species, they actually eat more calcium because they break it down and can utilize it to make an egg. Well, there's an mm-hmm. interesting little side bit of to the body, to most vertebrate systems, lead and calcium are so close because they're both heavy metals that if there's lead and calcium in a, in a, in a vertebrate's system, that lead can be stored well where calcium should be and thereby not be able to be used to produce, to, to uh, mobilize, to make an egg. And calcium is a major neurotransmitter. And so that's why we usually see paralysis in species that have ingested too much lead because it's stored mm-hmm. within those receptor sites so that the moment that uh, the, the neural pathways have to communicate, they can't because there's lead there. And I know that was a big tangent there, but it explains why we see things like You're scaring uh, people back to the periodic table that they <laughs> got away from in high school. Yeah, which odd, oddly enough, from when we all studied it, um, I assume in, in high school, if you look at it today, it's grown. We've discovered more elements. Yeah. Holy crap, that's a yeah. mind blowing thing alone. Anyway, um, so when you talk about the effect that lead has on vertebrate species, you start talking about things like uh, visual acuity or, or for us, our ability to, um, to walk in the um, tactile. Um, oh, what's the, uh, I'm not being very scientific now, but anyway, our ability to, you know, reach out and grab something or see yeah, something. Motor neurofunction. Motor, yeah, neurofunction, exactly. And so that's what they see in eagles. They see these eagles that have clenched feet and man, I hate seeing it, not because I just hate seeing wildlife hurting, but some groups will use these these that dying eagle pictures and videos, thinking that that's really going to drive hunters um, into doing you know what what I also hear folks like that saying the right thing. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, let's let's not go to right and all that. Let's just say that we have the potential to prevent exposure to lead of wildlife. 
really for many, that's simple enough. And most hunters that when we are able to have a, a meaningful conversation, that's pretty straightforward like this, we just say, Hey, if you had the potential to, to eliminate the, the possibility that wildlife might eat lead, knowing what you know and believe about lead, w- would you consider it? Most hunters said yes, mm-hmm. but it's so, mm-hmm. um, man, the way, the way it's pitched by some groups who are fairly aggressive and not necessarily friends to hunters, it looks like propaganda. It looks like a ploy mm-hmm. to eliminate or limit our ability to hunt. And I, I too hold, hold that um, dear, and I'm very cautious of that. And I don't want that to be used against us. And that's why I think the best approach, and that's why we co-founded the North American Non-Lead Partnership, is to get the information out to the hunters so they can make their own decisions. And we rest in confidence that we have such a history of, of, of uh, conservation in hunting that I know that if hunters know the details, they usually do what's best for wildlife. And we're seeing it in every little program that we have. So let me ask this, since you, you, you formed this non-lead partnership, you must have the science, you must have the information. So the first thing a hunter would say is lead is, going, is, is more effective than a copper bullet. True or false? I would say, I would argue that because um, are they more used to it because it's a tool they've used longer? Potentially, yes. Well, what's the science say? The science, the science says say in, holistically in, they work the same way. They have the same punching power. They Okay, so define one thing. First off, punching power. How would you define punching power? We really have to get in the details here. So you're asking a South African who is probably the worst bullet ballistics individual you'll ever talk to. <laughs> That's why I called it punching power yes so i'm thinking kinetic energy downfield that's going to cause the you know energy transfer into the body cavity that's going to cause trauma that's going to lead to death right right and see we have to base our answer and formulate our our scientific studies to investigate based on what people's assumptions are some people still call it knockdown power well knockdown power Okay, so so let me, and I think the, the best way to think about challenging our assumptions is to say, what about a well-placed single, uh, single uh, plane broadhead through the lungs of a bull elk at 25 yards? Did it have knockdown power? Is that what killed it? Mm-mm. Nope, no, it didn't. It, what killed it was not the kinetic energy, but the disruption of tissues. Correct primary tissues like both lobes of the lungs Mm -hmm. and the resulting blood loss and blood loss of blood pressure and the shutting down of the cns system by loss Mm -hmm. of blood transferring through that that body now there are other ways that that bullets kill obviously if you have a a severe impact to the central nervous system i.e a spine or a headshot yes that can kill them before they lose the blood that would be necessary to kill them the other way so do you see, and that's what I'm trying to explain here, and I'm not an expert either, um, and you said that earlier, and I, I just, I, I have a lot of conversation, and we've done a lot of science to investigate this, but when it comes to conveying that a copper bullet can, or a, a non-lead bullet, because right now copper is what's being used, but who's to say that there won't be something better that comes along? Um, right now, sure. it's just copper, solid copper bullets are the, are the number one alternative. Um, and if you're comparing copper bullets to premium copper bullets to premium lead bullets, the cost is actually the same. 
So it depends again, the devil's in the details, man. If you compare a core lock to a partition, well, wait a second, they've both been on the market for a long, long time, but one is considered premium and one is considered like the economic uh, alternative, right? Because you can go buy, well, you used to be able to buy core locks for 15, 17 bucks a box. Now it's like 38 to $58 a box because of the mm-hmm. pandemic and everything. But anyway, um, they are equally effective tools at harvesting game. As you begin to press the envelope for any bullet, whether it be lead or non-lead, like with increased distance and therefore lower velocities, it doesn't matter what the bullet's made out of, they have different capabilities. So I will not tell you that, you know, past 700 yards that a that a, a standard copper bullet of today and a standard lead bullet, that, that there's not a difference there, there is. But technology and manufacturers are fixing that. Now they're now they're building bullets that will actually compete with the the lead bullets out to ranges where the velocities drop below 1800 feet per second. Um, so, but again, the devil's in the details. I guarantee you, if you punch a hole through the lungs of any ungulate that we target and we hunt, I don't care what the bullet's made out of, that animal will die. Is it going to respond differently upon impact? You bet. Um, there are differences, in, and we'll get into some of the details, I'm sure, about you know a, a non-lead bullet like a copper bullet has to be longer because the density isn't as great, and so therefore it's a little bit longer. That changes the relationship between the lands and grooves and the way that that bullet passes through there and the stability that it has out to certain ranges, but it doesn't mean it's not effective. It comes down to the same. A well-placed shot. Um, sorry, my daughter was was leaving. Um, she's waving at me through the window in my uh, office, which used to be um, she and her sister's playhouse. So, <laughs> nice. I like it. <laughs> um, so, a a well placed shot of a bullet of any type is going to do its job. And the most important thing is to know your tools and know your capabilities mm-hmm. of using those tools. Yeah. Um, and that what I think gets back to really the answer to your question is 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 why we have issues with it or we uh, is is that it's change you know we've used what we've used because it's what we've used and it's worked for so long that unless it's thought to be an improvement on our ability to do what we're setting out to do it's like i don't know if i want that and i always talk about when i heard about well, isn't that a isn't that a isn't that a marketing issue absolutely and and if we marketed conservation like it were a product we'd be a hell of a lot better off in this day and age. But as scientists, we suck at marketing. Oh, man, we're academics. Man. <laughs> we don't even think about stories. We, we worry about peer-reviewed publications. Well, We don't worry about the outcome. And I think that's what makes me a better conservation, uh, hunting uh, conservation biologist than a scientist is that, man, uh, if we talk enough and I share enough information, people will go away thinking about it at least and that's the first step um, is thinking, you know, is it worthwhile changing what I'm doing to help, uh, you know, improve ecosystem health? And most hunters, uh, they, they come around to say, yeah, I'd do that. And you know what? It's not even about changing your bullet. That's not the only option. And when we say this, it makes some people crazy, especially those who think that a ban is the only solution. Pick up, pick up the caucus. Yeah. Yeah. You could just, you know, if I shoot a coyote out, out my back fence here. Um, and I have eagles around here, I can just go remove it. I've still interrupted that pathway. I've prevented potential lead exposure in those mm-hmm. eagles that are there mm-hmm. because I picked it up. That's something mm-hmm. we can do. 
And more important than that, with those hunters who have one, either chosen to use non-lead or they've chosen to pick up their carcasses, I need those data. Because when I go to talk to a non-hunting or a less than favorable attitude towards hunting group, I want to be able to tell them and demonstrate to them, look at the conservation ethic demonstrated by these hunters. We have hunters on the Kaibab Plateau in Arizona because of Arizona Game and Fish's program to help increase the use of non-lead and decrease the threat of lead. We have hunters up there that are bagging up gut piles and carrying them out of the field on a third or fourth trip after they've recovered their deer because they want to help. And we also... Yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because you have an example, right? We've talked in the theoretical, but you have a honest-to-God example, Kaibab Plateau, Arizona, Northern Arizona, good hunting, right? Fantastic. You're not dealing with... You're dealing with probably the best hunting in the world for elk, mule deer, right? Mule deer specifically there on the Kaibab. Mule yeah. deer specifically, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah it's and a so, trophy unit, yeah. So you're not dealing with... You're dealing with all sorts of hunters. You've, you're dealing with hunters that have been putting in for 30 years, 35 years to get that one tag, you bet. right? And then we um, ask them to use non professionals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. so what has been the response? What are, are there people going like, screw you, I'm not doing this. The I've been waiting 30 years. The response to Arizona Game and Fish's program up there on the Kaibab is 87 to 89% annual average participation for over a decade. That's the response. Now, let that sink in a minute. And I talked to a lot of law enforcement agencies, you know, and I talked to other, other wildlife management agencies across the U.S. Show me the statistics for laws. I think that that in, in itself, in and of itself, even though it's a... Is it a law? No, it's voluntary. That is the premise. That is the premise for the North American Non-Lead Partnership. Share information, develop incentivized programs to encourage hunters and 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 help them help us by in, incentivizing it or um, just simply sharing the information. But we incentivize it as well because you know, look in your mail, look in your mail, look in your email. The, the currency of today is, hey, if you take this survey, we'll, we'll thank you by giving you this uh, knife package and these uh, little sticky return labels or whatever. And now I'm really picking on one group, but I'm also a life member of that group, too. So anyway, but we're using that. And, you know, we've taken criticism like um, the Peregrine Fund. We spend about twenty thousand dollars a year of, of do- dollars that are donated to us to do wildlife conservation for raptors. And we spend that money on incentive prizes, whether it be rifles, um, rifles and, and um, uh, optics and things like that. We, we ante up and say, hunters that will participate with this program in Arizona and Utah, we will say, we'll put your name into a drawing. And in the early years, it was pretty damn good odds because we had a hard time in the beginning getting people to participate because they thought, like you'd said at the beginning of the podcast, that no, this is, uh, I, I, there's something fishy here and I'm not buying mm-hmm. it. But now we have mm-hmm. 87% annual participation for over a decade. To me, that's a testament of the will of hunters to do right by conservation. And that allows us to maintain our conservation and hunting heritage simultaneously. And I think that bodes best for us in the future of hunting. It's an amazing statistic. It's amazing statistic because it's voluntary. You bet. 
it's an it's a it's an even more amazing statistic when you layer on the fact that it's not just local public land here down the street. It is the Kaibab. It is the yeah. premier premier hunting area, and people have been waiting forever. And you're going to do everything in your when you draw that tag. You want to have everything in your favor. You bet. You bet. So it's even. And I, and I think that. Yeah. Yeah. It's even more impressive, right? And, and I think the, the key thing that you said was this is that there's two ways to, to solve the solution, to solve the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Number one, switch. Yep. Number two, if you don't want to switch, all good. Just bring the stuff out. Yep. Yep. And when people of the non hunting mind tell me that hunters don't care, there's nothing that pisses me off more. I mean that in that that brings something up from my core, and I, yeah, it's all I can do not to say you you just you just don't understand and you never will because I believe they too can come to understand, but they believe what they see and what they see because they're not you know my I'm a kid who grew up watching like like Dr. Whitetail you know Larry Weissen Sunday morning television. If I wasn't out in the field doing it, I was watching the people doing it. Well, these people didn't grow up watching that. They didn't grow up hunting and fishing and understanding and, and appreciating and really celebrating that that's all of our heritage. Not just mm -hmm. mine. It's theirs, too, because mm -hmm. two generations ago, hunting and angling meant a very different thing to the average person. Three generations ago, four generations ago, it was even more of, of a part of our lives. Anyway. Um, nothing pisses me off more. So when I say, have you ever hauled a gut pile out? Oh, no, I wouldn't even be, you know, it was like, okay, well, that's a pretty, pretty big imposition on someone who's just mm -hmm. busted their hump to do everything it takes to actually harvest an animal. But then they're going to go back mm -hmm. in there and get that gut pile. And you tell me hunters don't care. And then some mm -hmm. will challenge and say, well, they're doing it because they might win a rifle. I was like, yeah, maybe they are. But if they didn't win a rifle, they still did a good thing for conservation. Either way. And the sale of that rifle, because we pay for the damn thing, also goes into the taxes through Pittman-Robertson that also con contributes to conservation. So actually, they've contributed twice. What have you done lately to support conservation? Oh, oh I could 100%. go off the uh, deep end there. <laughs> I love your passion, Chris Parrish. You're, you're a kindred soul, my friend. Yeah. Kindred I, soul. I appreciate um, it. I love the fact also, I'll, I'll layer one more thing on here, is that on national news, very subtly, people saw hunters caring. Yes. Yes, they did. Yes, sir. And they saw it linked to an endangered species recovery program. Mm -hmm. And you know what else I hope resonated to even the non-hunters is that only hunters will be responsible for solving that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's if you're talking about lead poisoning, it is the hunters on the Kaibab right there adjacent to the release site that are making the difference for condors. Now, some will say, but you still have lead poisoning. True enough. True. We haven't solved the problem, but we are well down that road to doing so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's um, regulatory, like it is in California, where there is a ban, or it's voluntary in Arizona and Utah, like it is. We're still suffering from lead exposure in those species because we don't have across the board 
um, transition to non-lead or a, uh, you know, everybody hauling their carcasses out of there because still we run into people despite our decades of effort to engage with hunters. Some people still don't know or worse yet, they think it's all a bunch of hogwash. Right. Well, Chris Parrish, I know that you've changed a bunch of people's minds. Uh, at least you've, you've planted some seeds of maybe doubt or some thought. I hope so. Either or, right. Um, and uh, anytime you want to come back, anytime you have something that you want to you know, beat your chest about to say, look at the good job that we're doing as hunters, you just ring me up and uh, we'll have you back because I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Right on. Well, we'll keep up the fight, both for conservation and for hunting, because they are one and the same. Yes, sir. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.